This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Today on the show, we're facing our demons and never hesitating. Welcome to Wind's Howling, a companion podcast to The Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. My name's Abu. I'm Brett. And Brett, today we're talking spinoff, an anime, and a movie. <laughs> We've been thrown this meal. Yeah. And it's just incredible how much anticipation this has just the wait, the wait, the wait, it gets released and everyone just gobbles it up. Yeah. I'm super excited. Nightmare of the wolf is something that you and I have been looking forward to and probably the thing we have been most excited about. And it is officially released out on Netflix as of August 23rd, which is the same day we are recording. And we were actually lucky enough to get an early press screener of the film. So we watched it about a week ago, right? Yeah, and we like we talked about before, it's always good to see something completely fresh that we know really nothing about and there's no bias or viewpoints to it to kind of get that original viewing and let it settle. Yeah. Because, yeah, I watched this when we got the screening about a week ago and then kind of let it sit for like a couple days. And then on the rewatch with taking notes, it was a lot different doing it that way. Yeah, I appreciated having basically just your opinions and my own opinions and nothing on the internet could taint my viewing of the <laughs> of the film so uh, i could have some fresh takes that were my own many of which we're going to get into on today's episode but before we get in a couple of housekeeping things that we need to take care of a reminder that this is a prequel film that takes place many decades before the events of the books and season 1 of the netflix show so that having been said, on today's episode, there will inevitably be spoilers, not just for the film itself. We're assuming you're listening to this episode of the podcast because you already watched Nightmare of the Wolf. So obviously we're going to be talking about the film itself, but there will be potential spoilers for season one of the Netflix show, for the video games, and of course the novels. We're going to be making connections to Geralt's story and the larger Witcher canon across the entire universe. So consider this your official spoiler warning. Yeah, for only 80-something minutes, there's a lot to discuss. <laughs> a ton to discuss, yeah. Okay, so let's jump right in. So the film starts off. In our opening scene, we meet our hero, young, dashing Vesemir, in what is, quite frankly, a brutal opening scene. It is bloody. It is horrific. A young boy's entire family is slaughtered in front of him by a lesion. Yeah, I, I like the opening. The music was great, and they kind of have this song, and it's like, oh, okay, this is really good. Yeah. And the only way I could describe this opening is, dude, like, y'all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it just, from the get-go, slams through just like that lesion, slamming through Papa's head there, right in front of yeah. the children. And then just slaughtering the children from the get-go 
is like, okay, this this is this is what we're in for. All right. Exactly. It, it sets the tone for sure. Brutal stuff. Now, after this boy's family is slaughtered in front of him, he rushes into the woods and we come across young Vesemir, who then trades blows with this lesson and ultimately defeats it after some really cool fight choreography. We see some iconic Witcher techniques during this fight. We see Vesemir use a potion. We see him use blade oils. And we get a massive Ard, <laughs> an Ard sign. And he also uses Igni, the flame sign. And that's something that I was kind of going to hit on here is the signs here are like fucking supernovas. <laughs> and it's again, it's because this is connected to the series. I know it's anime. It's like, okay, because we'll see the Igni sign later, what happens. And it's like, oh, shit, motherfuckers just dropping like napalm over here. <laughs> so we'll hit on that a little bit later. But what did you think of the Leshen? The look of the Leshen, I should say. I thought the look was interesting because it felt more ghoul, like ghoul, tree ghoul than like tree monster. In the video games, it's very much like a lot of branches, right? Yeah. And, and this one very much had a humanoid body at its core yeah and that's the thing and i know it's off the less it's off the slavic i don't know if it's exactly polish but i'm pretty sure it's slavic like mythology is that was like one of the coolest designs was the lesson in the witcher 3 and that look and when they said the lessons in people just kind of had that in their head and then to see this was just like oh yeah and again that's just one of those i don't faulting them you can't take that exact design from it yeah but it did it's just not exactly what i imagined but it might actually be more like a traditional leshy so maybe they kind of had that right yeah yeah I, I liked in general i liked the monster designs in this film i had no issues with them or at least nothing stuck out to me as a red flag i, I liked the designs overall did they seem kind of similar looking to you yeah yeah a lot of them were sort of humanoid based they were, they were humanoid based. They they weren't very colorful. They were all very gray, yeah. very demonic, yeah. if you will. And like to me that I don't know, maybe we're bearing the lead and this should be later. But to me, that's kind of one of those like the monsters against monsters thing that this really hit on. But it's like, OK, but every quote monster we come into contact with outside of maybe Kitsu, if that's supposed to be one, is this very non-sentient monster that you could just easily slice and dice and not have to think about. And so that. That kind of just, eh, I didn't really care for that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a great point. Now, continuing with this opening scene, after this lesson is defeated, the young boy looks up at this dashing, handsome, heroic witcher who just saved his life. And he asks him for help. The young boy says, quote, you can't leave me here. What am I to do? <laughs> and young Vesemir, with a cheeky grin to both the boy and the camera, we learn tells the boy, quote, practice your sad face. Bye. And leaves him to his fate. Rough stuff. Yeah. I, I don't think the boy needs to practice his sad face when his whole <laughs> fucking family was slaughtered before his eyes. Yeah. Nothing to practice there. He's plenty sad right now. Like literally Ugh. he just saw his father. The mother wasn't there, right? Just the father. Yeah. Just the father the and the sisters. And the sisters just absolutely slow i mean like literally the dad had tent tentacle or whatever that was 
a branch or whatever the hell, yeah, right tree branch, through, right his through his face. mouth. Yes, yeah. right in front of the daughters. And just like, again, it's one of those like, man, they went full throttle with this. And this kid's like, well, you can't leave me here. What am I to do? I'm a noble. <laughs> it's like your family was just slaughtered. So yeah, he's, he's going to be plenty sad. Yeah, plenty sad. And uh, Vesemir's not doing much to help. All right, we're then introduced to Tetra Gilcrest and learn about her hatred of the Witchers. And she is in front of this just ultimately snobby king who just looked like he'd rather be anywhere else. Definitely. And, you know, she, she's in this court basically railing against the Witchers, right? She is asking the king to take action against Kaer Morin, to take action against these Witchers who she claims are a danger to society and are responsible for basically cheating peasants and workers and the average folk out of their money just to kill monsters that she claims they had a hand in creating. And I did think it was funny that they're getting this argument and he's just getting annoyed and it just is just like, okay, I'm going to take both your heads if you don't shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he does not want to be here. Uh, and we also meet Lady Zerbst in this scene, who's also a main character in this film. And she is an ardent defender of the Witchers and is basically countering every argument that Tetra brings up here in court. Now, following this court scene, we join Vesemir, who is enjoying a well-deserved bath. Here's our iconic bath scene. We saw this in the trailer. And he is speaking to the elf, Philavandral. And they are talking about this weird talking Leshen that he just had to fight. Because it's weird that the Leshen used what I believe was the elder speech. Is that correct, Brett? Yeah, the elder speech that they wouldn't be able to use. And he mentions that to the boy. And so we kind of get out there already like, okay, there's something different about this monster. This is not a normal monster, the Leshen. Correct. And the fact that this Leshen is different seems to concern Philavandral quite a bit more than it does Vesemir, who's just sipping on wine and enjoying his hot bath. And we learn from Philavandral here that... An elf girl named Kitsu had gone missing, among many other elf girls that have gone missing over the past couple of years. And it's something that he wants to look into. He thinks this talking lesson may be connected. There may be a larger mystery here. Yeah, 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 whatever. The only mystery to <laughs> me is we see Vesemir ass, but we don't, yeah. see, him, we don't see him hang dong. <laughs> we was don't it, see him hang dong. Was that a uh, whoa, uh, that was a Freudian slip right there. I was about to say, was that a cock out? <laughs> <laughs> was that a cop out by Netflix? See, I got it on my mind too. <laughs> oh man. Right, was that a cop out though that you just didn't it, as he got up, I'm like, okay, there's that. Oh, they didn't show it. Yeah, there was a hard cut. We did get to see full on ass though, which I'm sure was a treat for many folks. Vesemir by no means is a bad looking guy here. He's he's got the rippling abs, the broad shoulders, the dark hair. And uh, the nice ass. So he did not get the mutant look that Geralt got. He got the yeah. just heartthrob, <laughs> like, oh, my God, he's got the V look going, just shredded. Yeah. Actually, he's more like muscular than shredded. Yeah, I, I would say, honestly, looking at him was a treat. Hearing him be a cocky asshole in this scene, not so much. <laughs> yeah, and I think that just it goes into... 
again, it's just the lone wolf rogue that I said earlier and establishes where he's at so he can have that character development, especially with Villa, especially with Phil Evandrel coming back later on. Yeah, exactly. And the scene actually ends with Phil Evandrel basically asking if Vesemir will help him try and solve this mystery. And Vesemir says it's not his problem unless there's any coin in it for him. And Phil Evandrel then leaves without saying goodbye. Yeah, the, uh, you heard of the Irish exit. I guess this is the Elven exit. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. oh, oh, okay, I guess he's gone. Yeah, exactly. We then flash back to child Vesemir and learn about his humble upbringing as a serving boy in some lord's estate. And this is where I want to ask you about the structure of telling this. By going to these flashbacks, and these are pretty lengthy flashbacks, what did you think of this technique? Or device, I should say. Yeah, they're definitely lengthy flashbacks. I didn't notice it on the first watch through because I was just sort of invested in the story. But when I rewatched the film and took notes as I went, I was like, wow, a lot of this movie is flashbacks to Kid Vesemir when he's poor and young and working in this Lord's estate. I didn't mind it so much. I think without these flashbacks or without enough of these flashbacks, it would be tough to humanize Vesemir as a character, as a grown-up, as a witcher. So I didn't mind it. I think maybe they overstayed their welcome a touch, but at the same time, I appreciated how much it filled out Vesemir as a character. What about you? I can only think of one movie where doing this has worked, and that's The Godfather 2. And that wasn't even flashing back to Michael Corleone. It was going back to his father. And so I know some of the things, famously Game of Thrones did not do flashbacks until I think it was season six when they had like Maggie the Frog or whatever. And I think they saw it as almost like a cop-out. And the only issue that I have with it is this movie is only 80-something minutes. I don't need... Kid Vesemir, like, just tell this story of Vesemir. We got him. We got him introduced. Okay, we do it. And then we just, whoop, we go back 60 years, because I think he said he was almost 70 years old at the end. We flash back to almost 60 years, and we're getting this backstory. Obviously, this is going to matter, because Ileana is Lady Zerbst. But it's almost, I don't know, it's not exactly the same connection, but it's with the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, like the Phantom Menace. We didn't need to learn about Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, as a child. And so this with Vesemir, if you're going to show him becoming a witcher, then just start the movie with that and then flash forward ahead. So I just, I don't know, flashbacks just, they've, they've never really worked for me unless it was to reveal something and be quick because these were definitely lengthy. And to me, stop down the narrative. Ah, interesting. I didn't know you were so against flashbacks. Are you a Lost fan? Because uh, <laughs> that entire well, I, show is nothing but <laughs> flashbacks. Again, I watched that show when it came out. So that's 2004. The first season was amazing, but I bailed out by the third season because they were just spinning their wheels. <laughs> and I yeah, never went back yeah. and don't regret it at all. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that. But but here's the thing, though, about that. Like I said, that's a TV series. So you have time to do that. Right. This is an 80-something minute movie, and I just don't think... It didn't pull it off for me. I'm not saying, oh, this is terrible. It ruined it. To me, though, this movie was starting to get going. Okay, we're getting a little mystery here with Phil Evangel. We're doing all that. And then just, whoop, it throws us back for, what, like five, ten minutes? I, I totally agree. There was a little bit of whiplash with the pacing back and forth because as a Witcher fan, I came into this film thinking... 
okay, prequel. I'm going to get Vesemir backstory. And then within the movie, there's another backstory. You know, it was like backstory inception happening where now we're flashing back again to an even younger kid, Vesemir. I can see where you're coming from, especially the pacing point. I think the movie starts off strong and then kind of slows down to give us all this filler on Vesemir's life as a kid. Yeah, and I think that just goes back to why was this movie made? Was it made to tell a standalone story or was it made to help people with season two? And I just can't help but think it was made more to help people with season two than it was for a standalone story. That's a really good point. I wasn't even thinking in those terms, but I I think you might be correct on that. Either way, in the actual flashback itself, to get back to this flashback to his childhood, we meet, as you mentioned earlier, Ileana, who is his friend slash crush slash love interest in this film. And the two are basically young kids living this life in this Lord's estate. And... After a little bit of uh, harmless thievery, I'd say, in the marketplace, Ileana and Kid Vesemir come across Deglan, which is our introduction, our first introduction to this old, ragged, sort of gruff witcher who will ultimately be the person that recruits Vesemir into the life of witchering. Deglan is here to exorcise the demon that's possessing the lady of the estate that Ileana and Vesemir work in. And that's exactly what he does with a little bit of help from Vesemir. So this flashback wraps up with Deglin basically at this point refusing to take Vesemir with him because during that exorcism, Vesemir hesitated. And as we hear time and time again throughout this film, witchers do not hesitate. And so Deglin says, I can't take you with me. Vesemir being the gung-ho young kid that he is, decides to run away and follow him either way. And thus, we learn that that is how Vesemir ends up at Kaer Morin and begins his Witcher training. So grown-up Vesemir arrives at Kaer Morin for the winter as witchers from across the continent return to hunker down for the season and train the new recruits. And while he is tasked with teaching the young recruits fencing, which he definitely does not want to do, this is where they start to introduce, okay, this is where we're going to train the witchers. This This is how we're going to show how it's done. These are child soldiers. Yeah. Like the way they are trained, the one kid finally like fights back and goes, you have not fed us for days. And then like, we're supposed, we're supposed to be like, oh, Vesemir's the good guy. The witchers are the good guys. I- I- I'm being, I'm, not, I'm kind of being facetious and sarcastic, but I'm also being serious in, are we supposed to take them? And they kind of walk this line. And this is the thing I was most interested in, in how they were going to do this. You're towing this line of, oh, the witchers are our hero. Look at these badass monster fighters. Look how cool they are. But the way they're made and the way witchering as a whole is, is horrible, is absolutely terrible. And they do show it. And they show torture. These children, and they're not, I mean, they are obviously just children. These are orphans. These are beaten down kids. Not like it would matter too much, but to me, it's almost worse. These are kids that have been shit on their whole lives, that have been abandoned by their parents or their parents are dead, that go here and that they're tortured. And Vesemir says, oh, no, we're just going to toughen you up. And again, the athletic background that I come from, especially growing up playing sports in the 80s and 90s, we had these coaches that would withhold water from you. Oh, you pussy, you need some water in the 100 degree Texas heat. I'm just trying to toughen you up. 
No, you're an Jesus. asshole. Yeah, because that's the way they grew up with. And that's kind of what this is when it's happening. And Vesemir is just like, oh, I'm toughening you up. I'm like, okay, whatever helps you sleep at night, but are, <laughs> yeah. this isn't good. No, it's not good, objectively. And unfortunately, we will see more of the trial of grasses pretty soon coming up here in the film because we, we get it in detail. We then see those aforementioned methods of training in the flashback to Vesemir's childhood and his time at Kaer Morin. They're out in this swamp and... Again, children being brutally murdered on screen. Like these wraiths go inside them and are like a grenade or something and just blow them up. And many of them are killed or maimed. There's that one character we see lose an arm. And it, what's brutal is that they were just thrown out there. It seems like Vesemir went to bed and woke up in a swamp. Like no preparation, no nothing, just thrown out there to die or survive. This is brutal stuff and extremely immoral stuff. And it, it doesn't stop there because this scene continues and we see the trial of the grasses and the mutations that, th that they have to undergo. Yeah, and I, I guess my, my problem with that is, are we seeing them actually being trained? Okay, they had the fencing. Okay, but again, the biggest part, and again, another complaint that I have is a huge thing about being a witcher is you're a hunter, you're a tracker, right? and then you prepare, and then you fight. It's not actually about being this badass pirouetting and doing all that. I know it's an anime, I know it's a show, and they need to do that because that's what people are going to like. But like you said, it's like he wakes up, like he was asleep in the swamp. Like He gets up and is like, oh, like where am I? Oh, we're just all out here in the swamp, and we have our medallions. And I'm like, okay, this isn't training. This seems to be survival of the fittest. Like, it's almost as if they don't care if these kids die or they want them to die. And that's something that I did not get out of this. I did not get out of the training out of this. Yeah, I agree 100%. There's schooling, right? In, in the opening scene of the Witcher 3 video game, we see Vesemir complain that Siri is not doing enough of her reading is not reading up on the monsters and doing the homework he assigned her. There's genuine schooling that happens. <laughs> you, you, it's not just brutal survival of the fittest here. Uh, I, I agree. I, I wish we had seen some more of the training aspect of it. We saw the brutality, which I'm glad we saw. But we, we didn't see some of the skills that these young witchers pick up here, too. I think also the thing with the brutality and the violence is by now, like, we get it. Like, we've seen it. And yeah, we're almost yeah. desensitized to it. And it, to show more happening to more children is just, man, okay. I mean, I, we get it's horrible, but I'm not looking at it's going, oh, man, these wraiths and monsters are horrible. I'm looking at the witchers and the people in charge and thinking, okay, they're horrible. Like, they're the, yeah. they're the baddies. And which I think somewhat fits with the witcher, right? The witcher is known for being both in the books and in the video games morally gray, right? There, There's very questionable actions on both sides. There's not really any generic heroes who always do good. And the Witchers are certainly that. Are they fighting monsters in the world? Yes. Is that good? Sure. Are they going about it in a great way and training new recruits in a great way? No. There's a lot of gray area there. Yes, the monsters to kill monsters. Yeah, exactly. Now, we actually get a huge revelation in this flashback, too, because Vesemir, 
meets one of the mages who is responsible for developing these mutations. And he learns that not only are they developing these mutations, but they're also crossbreeding new and dangerous types of monsters. And that's a huge revelation. Quote, mages made monsters, then made witchers to kill them. End quote. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, it's like almost an original sin. Right. And we'll talk more about some of the lower implications and the, and the revelations here that the mages and the witchers are behind the monsters later on in the episode. Now, continuing with the film, obviously Vesemir survives these trials. We get that horrible montage of the kids just like mutating and being locked up in these rooms and going mad and many of them not surviving. Vesemir does survive. And then we get a short montage of him uh, doing hot witcher shit. And so he's out here making coin, killing monsters on the path, and basically doing the things he wanted to when he was just a poor kid working in a lord's estate. His life is in his hands, and he's making money for the first time in his life. Again, I don't know. I kind of just feel like I'm nitpicking or it's just something else. I don't think this is a nitpick. But a huge thing about the witchers are, it seemed like almost all the time, was they struggle. They're persecuted. He's like a fucking rock star here. And that, again, is just not something I get from being a witcher. But maybe it was back then. Maybe business was so good. Maybe that's what they're trying to show. Business was so good. And he's like being praised. And everyone's like, oh, my God, look at him. He's got all these contracts. Witchers, I always thought, were freaks and almost outcasts. And he wouldn't be in this pub, you know, showing shit, flipping coin. I don't know. Is that fair? Am I just being an asshole? <laughs> No, I think that's a fair assessment. I had that thought as well, because honestly, like it's a weird juxtaposition because in the very next scene, after this montage of him being this like rock star witcher, we see in present day, Vesemir and some of his friends, his fellow Lu like Luca and his fellow trainees go out to the bar while they wait for this new round of recruits to basically survive their trials. and. A fight breaks out in this bar because one of the knights like basically calls them freaks. And yeah, so it is kind of a weird, maybe times have changed. Maybe that's the movie's way of showing back when Vesemir was young and in his prime and a new freshly minted witcher. It was good. He was making good money. He was popular. And maybe now the tables have turned and folks are wary of witchers instead. We also get Eskelin Lambert name dropped which again yeah. just seems to more or less be like oh yeah season two's coming up and they're going to be characters in there so yeah th they're here too yeah exactly this bar scene then ends with a fight breaking out this is iconic witcher stuff it happens in the games it happens in the books witchers in bars getting in fights with people iconic stuff and that's exactly what happens here and they end up killing the knight who obviously didn't stand a chance against three fully trained witchers and that leads us into the next scene with Tetra. Yeah, so she's back on her bullshit, asking the king to try the <laughs> witchers for killing the knight in the bar, and which kind of seems to be like what might actually happen. Like, it doesn't matter if you're killing a knight in a bar and you're not of any other nobility or anything like that, you might be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. She's not wrong here to ask for that. So Vesemir and his colleagues are locked up, and... This is the moment we learned that Lady Zerbst is actually Ileana, 
because she goes and talks to Vesemir in the dungeons and basically tells him he has one option to get out of this. He can get a pardon if he will help rid the town of whatever has been troubling them in the nearby woods. And the catch here is they're not just going to let him free to go roam the woods and not complete the job. They're going to send an official to watch over him. And that official is Tetra Gilchrist. Yeah, and Luca has to stay behind. And as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, that motherfucker's dead. Yeah. He ain't getting out <laughs> yeah, of that dungeon. Rip Luca. <laughs> yeah, he, if he's not going on, if, if he's not going on this quest, he ain't going on another one. Yeah, exactly. He's held back as collateral. So Tetra and Vesemir don't exactly get along, but they manage to find the troublesome monster in the woods. And we also get a story from them about why maybe Tetra doesn't like witchers, about this right. con of the Redanian priest that says basically, this witcher do this, they're con artists, I don't like them. They basically made this up. And yeah, so we get to this kitsu, which turns out to be this stupidly powerful <laughs> illusionary magic. And they have this very, what I would think would be a very anime fight. Definitely very anime fight. I, I was thrilled. I don't know what you thought about it, but I, I liked the choreography in this one too. Yeah, I thought the fighting was really good when it was something like this, when they can really show the effects. Because that's why I do an animation. Because you don't have to worry about realistic looking special effects, which can look dumb in real life. You can just do whatever the hell you want here. The big thing to me is, is this more anime or did it feel more Witcher? And I have very little, almost no experience with this type of anime. And there were just at times where I just, it did, just didn't feel like almost like the Witcher, but I do think this one did feel like a monster fight where they're fighting the basilisk looking thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And they're kind of fighting. That's okay. That's kind of a traditional monster and they're teaming up and you have the mage with Tetra and outside of the Marvel-esque quips, which I could I could do without <laughs> ever hearing that shit again. Like they're fighting this. She has that effect on people. No, but that's the thing. I, again, I whatever. I want. I've said enough negative stuff, but whatever. But I did enjoy it. Thought it was very good, and they they killed this basilisk, and she comes over and like mourns it, like crying, and then it's kind of deciding, like, okay, what are they gonna do here? Yeah, basically. Vesemir and Tetra are unable to apprehend Kitsu, either kill her or capture her or whatever their intentions were. Kitsu escapes in this moment. And so Tetra and Vez continue their journey and are managed to find her lair within the elven ruins nearby. And this is where they come across my guy, Phil Evandro, who's stuck. <laughs> He's like trapped in this lair and uh, helpless. And they... You know, they help him out. And here during this conversation is where we, the viewer, and also Vesemir and Tetra learn Kitsu is a female elf that's been crossbred with a Mar, which explains why she has these extraordinary illusion magic powers. And it turns out that the mages have been running tests on elven girls. And that's where Philavandros missing elven girls went. Yikes. This is where it also plays into more of the backstory of elves being persecuted. Yeah. And this is also where Tetra deduces, or at least where she plays the card, to where the witchers are kind of behind this. And she kind of threatens Vesemir. And Vesemir's like, oh, no, no, we wouldn't do that. And we also get 
the discovery of a remaining elven girl. And right. anytime something like that, when they put in, they, I don't know, but like the one thing that came to mind is, okay, elven girl, younger, it's probably, I mean, it can't be because they're so old. Uh, but like, I thought it was like, oh, is that Francesca? But I'm like, no, nah, it can't be because of just how old the elves are. But I didn't know if that would be something they might have done show wise, because the show doesn't have to be the same as the book canon. But at the same time that, you know, the elves have such long lives and I actually don't know exactly what it is, but I'm like, okay, maybe, are they going to maybe tie that to Francesca Finderbear, who again is going to show up in the second season? Right, right. That's a great point. That thought didn't even cross my mind actually, but you're right. The show is not beholden to following the exact timeline or even the ages of characters, you know, they can, they can flub that a little bit. And that's maybe what this is hinting at or setting up. That'd be interesting. I guess we'll find out in season two. <laughs> All right. So the biggest thing is Tetra destroys the laboratory for our non-American listeners out there, the laboratory <laughs> uh, for everyone else. And yeah, Kitsu and Tetra have been working together, or they at least work together on that to lure Vesemir, I guess. They were going to, or to find that, uh, they did it to find the lab because she, Tetra apologizes yeah. for her basilisk being killed, right? He said, witchers never hesitate, drink. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I don't really, I don't fully get that. Yeah, this part's a bit confusing to me. I, it's a little unclear how long Tetra and Kitsu have been in cahoots. Like, how long have they been working together? Was this whole Vesemir journey situation all some sort of setup to do what exactly? Like, to kill Vesemir? To uh, to reveal something? I'm not sure. Like, how long have Kitsu and Tetra known each other? All of that is, like, sort of unexplained. And we get this very quick scene of them conspiring together. And this is where we start to see basically the the turn of Tetra into the antagonist of this film. But I wish this was a bit more clear. The relationship between Tetra and Kitsu is kind of rushed and didn't really make sense to me. But maybe it did to one of our listeners. Windshowlingpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Her motives before this can be called into question, but see... Is she not correct after this? The, it's going to be revealed, if not already, she figured out here. The witchers are behind creating these monsters. They are responsible for how many thousands of deaths in terror. So is she the, she's the bad guy for wanting to get rid of those people? Or is she the bad guy simply because she's going against Vesemir, our boy? Right. That, that's what I mean. Like, if people take out of this, oh, yeah, she's the bad guy. I'm like, okay, but why is she the bad guy? When you can you can have more, you can't have say bad guy. You shouldn't say that, I guess, anyway, because she's not a guy. <laughs> I would say the villain or the antagonist, and maybe that's just kind of what it is. She's clearly the antagonist of this story because Vesemir is our protagonist. But it is one thing that I did like when it talks about getting to the gray. I just hope people just don't look at that. And I guess that's my problem is it's not even with the show. It's how people take it as I know Vesemir from The Witcher 3. He was basically Geralt's father figure. Therefore, he's good and will always be the hero. But here, yep. he's on the side of, to me, the bad guys. And they're all guys, so I can say guys. The School of the Wolf is responsible right now for creating monsters that have killed thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands, hundreds, who, how many people, I have no idea. 
and that caused terror to the rest of the kingdoms and to the rest of the continent, actually. So he's the good guy, but he's on the bad side. And it is, it's this gray where I wish he would have done more to maybe try to change things. He doesn't seem to really take a stand on anything other than defending the bad people, which is Deglin and the mages. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And I, I liked how you worded that, actually. He's a good guy who's on the bad guy's side, right? Because he's sort of an unwilling participant in this. He, at first, doesn't believe that the witchers would be making monsters. And it's not until he goes back to Kermorin, which is actually the next scene, he returns to Kermorin and confronts Deglin and realizes, oh, shit, Deglin has been doing this secretly. Like, we are responsible for creating monsters. So it's hard to, like, really hold Vesemir 100% accountable for everything that Deglin and the mages are doing. True, but like I said earlier, when he's training the kids, the kid goes up to him saying, you've been starving us. And what does he do? He kicks the kid into a wall and says, you know, harden up, pussy. So at the same time, it's <laughs> yeah, like, okay, yeah. is he? Is he supposed to be? And I don't know. It just, again, I do think no, it's a no, problem. Absolutely. Like, he's not fully absolved of all of the Witcher crimes. He participates in their system, right? So that that means he is, he's party to everything that they're doing. But he, that doesn't mean he is aware of all of the secrets. Yeah. Which is, you know, the you could call that the redeeming quality of his character here. Is he, he didn't know. And when he does find out, he just tried to destroy the laboratory, right? He's like, no, we can't create monsters here at Karamoran. I'm ending this. And then him and Deglin fight in this scene. So, again, a lot of grays here. He's doing both good and bad. And it, I, I think you're absolutely correct that painting Tetra as just the bad person in this movie is the wrong way to think about it because she's doing what she thinks is right and what she thinks will save thousands of lives, which is not wrong. That's true. Returning to this fight, at Kermorin, basically while Vesemir and Deglin are trading blows, Lady Zerbst arrives and she's here to uh, sound the alarm. Tetra is at the door. She's knocking at the gate with a peasant army behind her. And she's not here to throw a birthday party, folks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. She brings this peasant army and they kind of have this little parlay. But that, that, yeah. that doesn't really work because Deglin's an asshole. And <laughs> then the fight is on where Kitsu summons all these monsters through a portal, massive ones, smaller ones. And then this horde starts to attack and try to overwhelm uh, this fortress. And I actually, somebody brought this up in a Discord channel like right before recording. And they brought up, they have this fortress of Karamorin, right? Like. Right. What what the hell is the point of a fortress? Is to withstand a siege and to not fight people out in the open, especially when you're outnumbered. <laughs> but I just yeah. chalk this up to exhibit number one billion seven hundred forty-eight thousand eight hundred and ninety-four of just screenwriting, where it's oh, we need to have this massive open battle and have no logic behind it. Yeah. And that's nitpicking. I don't really care about that much. That was something they were saying there. I just thought that was funny. That they didn't do it. But I also thought it was great that Deglin's like, all right, we're going to charge. And Vesmer's like, no, dumbass. Wait, <laughs> he, no, we don't. Why are we going to charge them? So I did like right. that at least they didn't do the charge. Yeah, let them come to us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm glad. You know what, Brett? I 
I'm always a fan of when you flex your history degree. So that's fair. That's a fair criticism. <laughs> now, the rest of the movie basically wraps up with this climactic sort of third act, the fall of Kaer Morin, which is an important part of Witcher history that we hear about both in the books and in the video games. And it's something that, frankly, has not been explored to much depth. We hear about it. We know that Kaer Morin fell to a peasant army at some point in its history. And now here for the first time, actually, we get to see how that played out. So as Deglin and some of the surviving witchers try to hold the gate, Vesemir heads into the keep itself to confront Tetra in their, in their final standoff here in the keep. This, fi <laughs> this final fight between Tetra and Vesemir it is pretty incredible visually. Um, they're, they're pulling off some insane stunts, definitely leaning into the animation, which was fun. And we get some cool action sequences. And Kitsu uses her illusion to full effect here. Because at some point in the fight, the illusion activates. Vesemir chops off the head of what he thinks is Tetra. And then he rushes forward and stabs his blade right through what he thinks is Kitsu. And as the illusion dissolves, uh-oh, he realizes he actually chopped off the head of one of the mages at Kaer Morin and stabbed right through Ileana instead. Oof. I think maybe the switch was, or the illusion, was when he went back to his dream, when he's with Lady Zerps and the coin and all that. When yeah. Says, Get out of my mind. I think that's when it was. It's after that when it's um, obviously changed. I again, I'm not sure how much sense it made, but it was great. Like this was awesome. The fight was cool. We'd seen a lot of fights, so at that time, I'm like, okay, another fight. All right, that's pretty cool. Oh, you know, we got all that. But then, like, the rug pulled out by thinking, okay, because it wasn't a short fight. If it would have been like a 20, 30 second fight, I'd have been like, okay, that's too short. That can't be it. But it went on long enough that I believed, like, okay, there goes Tetra. Oh, there's not a lot of time left. Oh, there goes Kitsu. Okay, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fade into the mage being Tetra was just, oh, shit. And then you realize, wait, if the mage was Tetra, then... <gasps> and that's the thing. This was great. And to me, having this where Vesemir is responsible not only for killing the love of his life, but also for killing the mage that essentially you would think would put an end to the Witcher's like, that's great. Oh, my God. What's he going to do? This is going to change him completely. He, he, he buries, you know, he buries Lady Zerbs, but then that's it. Like, the movie ends within, like, eight minutes of this happening or ten minutes of this happening. Yeah. And it's too sudden. Like, I need to see him deal with possibly being responsible for ending the Witchers and then killing. Like, he's sad because he, you know, he's sad because he obviously killed Lady Zerbs or the Lady Zerbs is dead. But it's like, he killed her. Like, he's going to have to live with running his sword through her. Yeah. We don't see the fallout from this fight. You're correct that the movie just basically wraps things up real quick. After and that's, this. I just don't get it. It's animated. It's only 80-something minutes. You couldn't do, you couldn't somehow do another five to ten minutes to maybe have him talk with the Witcher trainees that he catches up with. Just be like, I lost the Vesemir, what happened? You know, something like that. There's my <laughs> little Jedi. This Master Skywalker. You know, that whole thing. But yeah, to yeah. do just something in there to be, oh, where are we going? Well, we don't have a home anymore. 
well, there might be more of us. Now, nah, well, I killed the guy that can do it. And him having to deal with that, that's the stuff I want. I want more characterization. I don't need more fighting. I don't need more, oh, look at this badass witcher. Show me what's going to happen to him in the fallout, like you said, from him doing that. Right. Yeah, we, we don't get much emotional resolution beyond him burying Lady Zerps in that one scene. But before we get to that, we're almost done. Let's wrap up this movie. Tetra here as Lady Zerbst is bleeding out in Vesemir's arms after he just ran his sword through her, gives one last sort of generic villain speech and reveals to us and to Vesemir that her mother was the one that was killed in that story she told around the campfire. Yeah, and that's where I don't, I mean, I'll actually defend at this point. I don't think that was generic. Do you think that was generic? I saw this coming from a mile away. I saw okay. the minute she told that story in the campfire, I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, her, yeah, yeah, her yeah. family. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe the speech itself was maybe. fine, but the, the yeah. yeah, predictable. Okay. And uh, ju it's just a twist that I saw coming from like yeah, halfway for sure. in the movie. For sure. After this, Deglin pulls a deus ex machina here at the end. And before Tetra can hit Vesemir with a final blow, he manages to kill her right before he dies himself. And in his parting words to Vesemir, Deglin tells him to take over the Witcher training. Deglin basically says, do better than I did, do better than we did. I'm entrusting the future of the Witchers to you, Vesemir. Make them into something more. And we, we get a classic something more drop here as well. Yeah, we had a question of price earlier. They name drop yeah. a good amount of like book short stories and all that in there. Yeah, a, a couple of cheeky Easter eggs throughout this film, for sure. Only dorks like us would recognize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, as the keep burns down, Vesemir actually chooses to let Kitsu go and instead departs to bury Lady Zerbs, to bury Ileana, the love of his life, next to a gorgeous lake. And I, I did like that, that you yes. see... Kitsu, and of course it's a fox, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna love that already. <laughs> but the fox, Kitsu's up in the rafters in the fox form, and you know, obviously Vesemir's gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna kill you. But Lady Zerp's like dying is like, no, like she didn't choose that. And it's kind of in the yeah. same way. Well, it does, it mirrors like the Witchers. The Witchers did well, Vesemir chose it. I guess that's a bad example. <laughs> Vesemir chose to be a Witcher, but other ones did not choose to be Witchers. Right. And so him leaving Kitsu up there and they kind of look down, it leaves it open for, I guess, anything else they want to do story-wise, whether they want to do another movie or something, I don't know, a book, you know, it's expanded universe, who the hell knows what they're going to do. And the only thing that this kind of reminded me to, it's not it, because it's different, is Aguara, which means fox from Season of Storms. And I don't think that was anything, I think, I don't know, I don't don't think that was anything in there. I think it's just anybody's, okay, Witcher, Fox, okay, that must be Aguara. I, I don't think there's anything from that. But again, maybe they can always just tie something in to their own thing, even though it's obviously not it. But I just loved this moment here of him leaving and Zerps basically giving almost forgiveness of saying, hey, she didn't mean it. And then they leave and they depart. I loved, I loved that part, that moment. Yeah, it was a touching moment for sure. And then after the burial scene next to the lake, we get the final scene of the movie. Our film ends with Vesemir tracking down the Witcher novices who had escaped Kaer Morin during its sacking. 
And it ends with an iconic and or vomit inducing line is what you wrote here. (laughs) But basically, Vesemir tells the kids that he will no longer allow them to hesitate. They need to choose here or now. Will they become witchers under his tutelage? And he turns to one boy in particular and he says, quote, there will always be another monster, Geralt, end quote. And we get a close up of the young boy holding a witcher medallion. Roll credits. End of the movie. The young bald boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My eyes rolled out of the back of my head. I (laughs) I like I wanted to punch my screen once I got up from fainting that. I hated that. And it's not a big deal. I'm not like, oh, that ruined it. But like all that goodwill I was feeling from the ending of the movie, I saw that. I'm like, that is such like, what's the point of that? Again, otherwise, just to connect it to two, because if you're going to do that, is that Cohen, Lambert and Eskel with him? Like they name dropped Eskel and Lambert earlier. That's what I mean. But at the same time, what we know from Lambert, Lambert is the youngest of the witchers. He can't be the same age as Geralt. And Geralt actually looks like the youngest one there. So that can't really be them. You know, Eskel was always known as Geralt's oldest friend. So that can be one of them. But they said like Eskel and Lambert together. Again, I'm not nitpicking. I'm not saying, oh, they have to do this. It's obviously going to be different. But if you're going to do that, then introduce us to the witcher bros right here. Because we're going to see them in season two. Be like, oh, here's Cohen, here's Eskel, here's Lambert. Yes, there will always be another Geralt. Then I would, then that would have been cool. But just throwing in Geralt is just such a shoehorn. Like, uh, hey, everybody, look, look, it's Geralt, everyone. Look, look, it's Geralt, it's Geralt. <laughs> like, I don't know. I thought it was lame as shit. Yeah, you know what? I I can understand that. I didn't feel so strongly about it. I was kind of indifferent. I had a feeling after we got the Eskel Lambert name drop that something like this was going to happen. I wasn't sure. And I also am kind of in your camp of this is unnecessary. You don't need to shoehorn Geralt into this film. So I was hoping they wouldn't. But I had a feeling this was coming after we heard Eskel and Lambert's names. So I wasn't too surprised by this final scene. And ultimately, I'm kind of indifferent about it. Like, yeah, it feels shoehorned in. It feels unnecessary. There's some lore inconsistencies with timeline and ages, but they felt like they had to connect it to the Witcher universe for some reason. And there it is. Little baby Geralt, little baby bald Geralt <laughs> surviving <God>. Care Morin. <laughs> he, he did. And he was trying to run away. So I guess he was a coward as a little kid because <laughs> they said that they're like, oh, how do you know about this exit? Oh, he tried to sneak out earlier and he gives that little wry smile. A cheeky grin. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh, Geralt was a Geralt was a craven. as our badass witcher okay that little twerp okay we're gonna take a quick break here but stick around we'll be right back hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Alrighty, welcome back. Let's round out today's episode. So that summary got longer than we anticipated. And we actually incorporated a lot of what we liked and disliked in our conversation. So instead of repeating ourselves, let's just continue with the episode and get into some lore because there was some really 
interesting new ideas introduced in this film that isn't covered in the books or the video games or in this first season of the Netflix show. So we want to just briefly touch on some of the new lore that was introduced here and share our thoughts on it before we wrap up today's discussion. So let's start with the obvious one. We got Vesemir's backstory. We learned about his childhood. We learned about his life as a young witcher. And we also got the sack of Kermorin. We saw that happen for the first time, neither of which were fully explored in either the games or novels. What were your thoughts on these two things? Vesemir's backstory and the attack on Kermorin. I liked that. I like kind of attaching Geralt, Eskel, and Lambert to the sacking because that is something that is not hinted at at all. And I do think it makes it more personal. Yeah. And this is one of those where, again, because I viewed this film as setting up for season two, it will make that more personal. And I do now think they'll actually talk about that in the season, that there'll be a reminiscent of, man, when this place fell, I was, a you know, Geralt's going to be like, I was this little shithead trying to get away. And I do <laughs> yeah. like that it tied to that because otherwise it'd be this old decrepit fortress <laughs> that wouldn't kind of really be their home. Like they can, in a way, yeah. somewhat, I know it's going to be like, I mean, not even that's going to be however many years, 90 years or whatever it is, however old Geralt is in the show as opposed to the books. So it's going to be longer than that, but at least it's going to be something they can look to and make it more of a home for them. So I did enjoy that. I fully agree. I, you know, as questionable as having the kids there is, we sort of already touched on the timeline and lore inconsistencies. Ultimately, I think this was a smart choice because now Care Morin is more personal to them. It is somewhat of a home to them and a home that they saw nearly burned to the ground or basically burned to the ground. And so when they return to it as older witchers, it can be more personal to them. It's a it's a safe place, a place that they feel attached to and has a history for them. And especially for Vesemir as he was old enough. But it does bring up this question because they did show this in the first season of the show and not from any kind of other lore. Geralt was basically abandoned by his mother and Vesemir is there to pick him up. So Vesemir like knew who Geralt was there, but they never kind of bring that up. And when they talked about like Eskel and Lambert are going to make it, they did mention Geralt. I know they did that because they wanted the reveal at the end. But that was the one thing also that I had a problem with. If you're going to have Geralt in Nightmare of the Wolf, have him interact with Vesemir. Don't just have him have this cameo at the end. Like that's going to be such an important thing. And it just seemed like to me that was wasted. And that was something that they could have had five minutes on of just them together, sometime in the training, sometime introduce Geralt and Vesemir's relationship. Okay, like maybe Geralt was like this runt. Maybe he's smaller because he did undergo extra mutations. So maybe go through that where it's Geralt's too weak. He's not going to make it. Well, we need to have extra mutations. We need to do that and go through that Geralt being scared and Vesemir being this father figure in that change. And again, that's something that they could have done more with. But again, it's the, the, the movie's just too short. Like it just is to do yeah. what they were trying to do. And again, that's probably a little bit unfair, but that's just something I want. I want relationships. I want, that to me is the Witcher. It's not the actual fighting. And I have to step back and understand that's not what most people want to see. Most people want to see these badass lone wolf monster slayers. And I have to understand that Netflix is not going to do that. 
Even though I will say this, for, <laughs> no, I mean that. But even for season two, the showrunner, Lauren Hestrick, did say that it's going to be more about relationships. So I do hold out hope that season two will be a lot slower and will hit on this so much more because it could be so good. I agree. I hope so too. And I actually really like your idea of having more Vesemir Geralt interactions in this film, maybe planting those seeds of that father-son sort of father-figure relationship that we know they end up having later in life. It would have been cool to even just get small seeds planted here in this film that could then later take fruit in season two. But nope, he was just a cameo. (laughs) Okay, so the other big lore thing that was revealed and the final thing we want to touch on before we wrap up today is, of course, the Witchers being responsible for creating the monsters. Probably the biggest revelation of this film. What were your thoughts on this? Uh, wh- where do you stand on the Witchers being responsible for creating the monsters that they're hunting and for this being honestly like the driving force for the fall of Kaer Morhen? It's, it's the big thing that Tetra uses to get this peasant army together and attack. I guess the thing is, what, are, what am I supposed to take away from it? Because what I take away from it is the School of the Wolf deserved to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And all of these witchers, because whether they are have a hand in it or not, they're responsible for perpetuating it because they're part of the problem. If they're doing it, even though you're there, you're a part of it. So am I supposed to take away that they were bad? Okay, good. Then I'm glad they died. And I'm not sad that it got destroyed. And I guess that's where... I would have liked to have seen Vesemir almost go against it and understand, man, this was bad. I'm going to, you know, do my own thing. And then I guess he kind of did. I guess he did when he was fighting Deglin. That's true. And then he got caught and got caught up in the brotherhood. Okay. Now that that come about, I I guess that's okay. And then Deglin kind of changed. I guess, I guess that goes back to me. There just wasn't enough time. It was just rushed. Right. The last 20 to 30 minutes is just full throttle. And I guess some of that stuff just didn't click with me until I talked it out right there. Yeah, totally. The film doesn't slow down enough for us to see Vesemir grapple with this revelation, right? This is a huge, life-changing revelation. We get all of that emotion and all of that betrayal and all of that you know, supposed turmoil in like a 60-second fight scene with Deglin, right? Before Lady Zerbst comes in and interrupts and we launch into the final attack on Kaer Morin. So I agree that pacing at the end is like nonstop pedal to the metal and we don't take the time to to slow down and really talk about this revelation or see its effects on Vesemir, who is in this film our protagonist. And despite him being, again, attached to the Witchers, he does choose in that scene to destroy the thing that's creating these monsters. He does make a choice there. We just don't take the time to stew in it. Or see the emotional fallout of that. And what I would have liked to see more from this film, again, talking pacing, talking about the movie slowing down and taking more time on certain aspects, I felt like the mages were sort of constantly talked about and we never actually saw them, right? The, we, we didn't explore their motivations. They were sort of relegated as these cookie cutter like, yeah, those mages are crossbreeding shit. Aren't they bad? <laughs> And it didn't really get any further than that. Like, why are they abducting these elven girls? Like, what the fuck are they up to? Like, what is their motivation here beyond just, I guess, science? Like, that that to me is a little flimsy. Like, they're not just abducting little girls 
for the sake of science? Beyond that, I think the actual witchers and mages creating monsters plot point, I think it served its purpose well. And I think it was reasonable motivation for a character like Tetra, who already has this beef against witchers, a very personal stake in this. I think it served its purpose well as a driving force for this movie, for Vesemir to turn against Deglin and for Tetra to finally attack Kaer Morin. Yeah, and I think that almost does the disservice to the narrative by saving Tetra's reveal until the end was, from the beginning, oh, she's against witchers. Why is she against witchers? Well, she doesn't really say. And so she leads off as this, again, a cookie-cutter bad guy, I shouldn't say bad guy, cookie-cutter villain or antagonist with no real motivation. And she just keeps going. It's like, what, what's her motivation against witchers? She, and then she tells this story, and like you said, we can kind of figure out, oh, that must be it. It literally does not get revealed until the very end of the movie, that motivation. And so that, right. to me, is just very boring at the beginning. Oh, Tetra is this mage. She's against witchers. Oh, now she's going to team up with Vesemir? Okay, that's kind of weird. But they saved that for that reveal and that little twist of, oh, that was me, which you could see coming from a mile away. And so that, I, I did not care for that at all when it comes to like her motivations. But yeah, even the, the mage's motivations, I guess the abducting, the abducting elven girls was to be like, hey, here's another example of elves being persecuted. Yeah, that, that's true. And, you know, again, it's good that they show the brutality of this universe and particularly the persecution against the elves. But I just wish it, it had been explored more because, I don't know, like people don't just commit horrific crimes and do immoral <laughs> experiments for no reason or just because. They don't just wake up one day choosing to do that. There's motivations behind it. And many of those people think that they're in the right or they have the right to do something like that. And I just didn't get the sense we explored any of that from the mage perspective. We got a little from the Witcher perspective. Okay, we have talked this movie to death. We have <laughs> nitpicked it left and right, as we do on this podcast. But again, we do it out of love. We love this universe, and we can't help but notice the small details and want the best for the Witcher and any content created for it. Let's wrap up. Let, let's give some of our final thoughts, sort of stepping back from the discussion we've had Big picture, what was your overall rating of this film, Brett, and would you recommend it? So I see you have a rating on there. Uh, I don't do ratings in the sense of it's hard to objectively rank to me art. And like you have a nice round number on there, but I see people <laughs> that rate this stuff and they're like, oh, I rate this an 8.7 out of 10. I'm like, a fucking 8.7? What makes this an 8.7 and not an 8.8? <laughs> or if you rate someone an 8.7 and something's an 8.6, what makes this movie one-tenth of a percent? So I don't like doing that. I like to do it basically, if I sit down to watch a movie or watch something and it keeps my attention, then that to me is great. Like, it's great. It's amazing. This did not keep my attention. It didn't keep my attention the first viewing. It didn't keep my attention the second viewing. Mm-hmm. I have on here, it reminds me of Jurassic World. Overall, a very meh movie, a very, uh, it's really not that good. But when I watched Jurassic World, that ending was fucking incredible, that fight. And it made up and I'm in there and it's like, holy shit, this is great. And when it ended, <laughs> I'm like, damn, that was really good. And then I go back and think about it and I'm like, oh no, it's lipstick on a pig or something like that. And I think that's what this was. The ending fight with the illusion and all of that and the way Vesemir again killed the mage and Lady Zerps 
was great. And it masked a lot of problems I had on the first viewing. And so I do think this will be a lot like season one. People are so starved for Witcher content. They're going to see this and be like, man, this is great. I loved it. And then a month, a few months on rewatchings, reviewings and all of that, I think they're going to temper it and have a lot of stuff like we said, where it's a lot to be desired. I think it was stretched too thin. They tried to do too much. It's exactly like season one. So I don't think they learned their lesson from season one in this. I hope they do for season two. Just tell your grounded story, the world building and all of that. It can come. But this was 80 something minutes where just stuff was jammed in. And then we slam on the brakes to go to flashbacks. Right. And then once the flashback stopped and we get to the last 30 minutes, we're just slamming on the foot on the gas. And that just NOS, NOS fuel activated. Yeah. Baby. And that created a very <laughs> uneven viewing experience. But again, anybody listening to this has better already watched it. If you're listening and you haven't watched it, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. Like, what? You're at the end of the podcast. Yeah. What the like, fuck? <laughs> so anybody's going to do that. But I maintain it's exactly like season one. If nobody knows about The Witcher and they're just like, oh, maybe I should watch that, this is not going to keep anybody. I've seen so many accounts from people I know from other people's accounts of like parents and other people who watched like the first episode, the pilot of The Witcher, and were like, yeah, that's not for me. I think that's exactly what this is going to be. If you like anime, you'll probably like it because this is more like an anime than a Witcher movie to me. So I think that's just pretty much what it is. If your expectations were lowered, I think you're really going to like it. Yeah, I agree on many levels, actually. I enjoyed the film start to finish despite the pacing issues we've talked about, despite some of the nitpicks we've discussed on this episode, the first time I sat down and watched it, I had a good time. And if you're a Witcher fan, I would say this is a solid 8 out of 10 experience. And actually, let me revise that just to annoy you, Brett. It's an 8.2 out of 10 experience. Okay, why was it an 8? (laughs) (laughs) I'm raging. (laughs) But the caveat there, of course, is if you're a Witcher fan. You and I, huge Witcher fans, we came into this wanting to absorb as much Witcher content as possible. Do I think it's required viewing? Not really. I think if you like anime, if you like Witcher, if you are sort of in that Venn diagram of people, sure, watch this movie. You'll have a good time, and I think you'll enjoy it. I certainly did. If you're not a Witcher fan, if you don't like anime... If you don't care about sort of world building and extended lore and you really just watched season one and felt meh about it, I don't think this movie is going to do much for you. And I don't think the average viewer is going to get a lot out of it if they aren't in that very special Venn diagram of either big Witcher fan or big anime fan or both. I don't think the film did anything groundbreaking. I don't think it's must see, but I had a good time as a Witcher fan and I think It did a lot of good things well. The action alone, I think, is worth the price of admission. And uh, the animation style, I enjoyed. The characters were well-rounded. The movie had a lot of good things going for it. But as a full package, I think you're correct in your assessment that it left much to be desired. Well, Abu, podcasts are podcasts, lesser, greater, middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract and it's time to collect our reward. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. 
You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the path.